1: Hi, you're listening to a New Books Network podcast. My name is Shraddha Chatterjee, and I'm currently a doctoral candidate at York University in Toronto. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Shreela Roy about her new book titled Changing the Subject, Feminist and Queer Politics in Neoliberal India, published by Duke University Press in 2022. Dr. Roy is Professor of Sociology at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, Her long-standing research interests and expertise are in the field of transnational and decolonial feminist studies. Dr. Roy is the author of Remembering Revolution, a book focused on the gender and sexual politics of India's Naqsalbari revolution. She is also the editor of New South Asian Feminisms and co-editor of New Subaltern Politics, as well as Intimacy and Injury. Dr. Roy is an editor of the journal Feminist Theory and associate editor of the gender and sexuality section of Sociology Compass. She also co-edits a book series for Manchester University Press called Governing Intimacies in the Global South. She's currently writing a collection of essays on decolonizing higher education in the global south through the lens and the promises of transnational feminism. Thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking to us today, Dr. Roy.
0: Oh, thanks so much, Ratha, for having me. It's such a pleasure. And actually, I just wanted to say it's a particular pleasure to talk to you about this book because uh, your book was—I I, I will still maintain—is one of the it's still one of the few we have in this archive on queer feminisms in India. So, so thank you.
1: Uh, thank you so much for saying that. I mean, it 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 is an objective fact that there isn't too much written about queer feminism in the subcontinent, and you know. I'm glad that you're changing that and hopefully others will also Um, but that helps us jump right into the first question which is could you tell us a little bit about your intellectual journey especially as it leads up to the framing of this book so in other words what made you realize this book needs to be written and how did that journey frame the book itself?
0: Yeah, so as I say at, um, you know, the start of the book, I mean, I started to kind of think about the, so obviously, this is, this is my second book. And my first book, uh, which you mentioned, Remembering Revolution, is, uh, is, is my PhD thesis, which I did in the, in the UK. I mean, there, there's probably a more interesting backstory to that book, because I, I did a philosophy degree in India as an undergrad, and I went to the UK to do more philosophy. And thank God I didn't. <laughs> I discovered gender uh, gender and sexuality studies instead. But anyway, long story short, um, as I was finishing up uh, the PhD, which was in something totally different. I mean, for people who don't know about the Noxalite movement, I suppose you could say it's it's, you know, one of the hallmarks of Indian Maoism or uh, you know, Maoism in the subcontinent and I was looking at the gender and sexual politics of the movement and effectively conducting a, a kind of oral history of uh, women activists or so radical left uh, activists you know who were part of the movement in the 70s and I was obviously interviewing them kind of 30 years later and many of these women had gone on uh, to become part of uh, what were called autonomous women's groups so constituting uh, quite a significant generation of uh, you know Indian feminists, a kind of second wave, if you if you want, and it was their biographies I think which uh, you know took me quite organically from these histories of left wing movements uh, to you know the Indian women's movement. But in uh, in sort of then kind of reading about the Indian women's movement, I found if you want a, a kind of imbalance or even a, a gap, which was that. There was a lot written and documented about the 70s as a kind of golden age of women's rights activism, as you know, the time of, you know, very vibrant anti-violence activism, a lot of legal reform, et cetera, et cetera. But there was nothing very much from the 90s onwards where there were quite substantial changes you know, in the terrain of feminist organizing with uh, globalization. But notwithstanding the lack of, um, I mean, at least what I found, like empirical documentation, there were a lot of strong feelings about these changes. And so feelings of kind of loss and nostalgia of, you know, of a golden age that was past. And one of the first articles I, I wrote uh, was kind of thinking about this through the lens of feminist melancholia. So on the one hand, there was a kind of classic academic gap in the literature, which is what you want as a researcher, but there was an excess of affect. And I mean, I suppose more specifically, the the sense of, you know, these feelings about uh, loss was around the rise of a new organizational form, which was the NGO or the non-governmental organization. And, you know, the story in India goes, as it does in in many other places, that, you know, the heyday of the movement was dominated by uh, groups that were not affiliated to political parties and were not, uh, you know, reliant on funding. And then with globalization or what we call liberalization in the Indian context, you have the rise of uh, funded groups. So many of these autonomous groups, the ones that, you know, I got to know through some of the women in the Nockstreet movement converted into NGOs but much more you had a whole you know a range of new uh, organizations working on uh, gender and sexual rights and many of these concerns were expressed in terms of you know discourses uh, around the co-option of feminist struggles incidentally and i say this also early on in the book that arguments or anxieties about co-option were pervasive uh, across the north and south so interestingly at that time you know i was in a British university where women's study centers were uh, leading their precarious institutional lives. So, you know, co-option debates were taking uh, very many different kind of um, uh, tones in, in different contexts. But I suppose in the Indian context, I felt that, you know, this whole sort of um, uh, 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 debate around NGO NGOs and NGOization sat a little uneasily with me, not least because I feel like my cohort... Like many people who I graduated uh, with from you know universities in India went into NGOs, and I often thought I would have probably done that too, you know, work in these spaces in gender and sexual uh, rights, and 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 why not? You know, that seemed like a very kind of obvious thing to do if you were sort of thinking of yourself as a feminist or interested in social justice, etc. I mean, the other final thing I want to say about this context was that this period of the '90s, which was this locus of feelings of loss or anxieties around co-option was also when, as as you know, and you've written about, you know, the terrain of sexuality or organizing around sexuality and sexual politics changes dramatically, because it's also the moment that coincides with, you know, the global crisis around HIV AIDS, and there's a lot of money that's being pumped into countries like India, and of course, the African continent, uh, to do work around uh, at-risk subjects. But what happens is those at-risk subjects, men who have sex with men, sex workers, you know, use this moment to make claims on the state in terms of sexual rights and sexual citizenship. So I, I guess all of this just suggested to me quite a complex and quite a, a messy terrain. And, and one of my early motivations for the book, or why I thought the book maybe, you know, maybe there was there was room for a book of this sort was to try and complicate and go beyond what seemed to be, to me then, a very polarized, you know, logic, a very polarized debate between co-opted feminists and non-co-opted feminists.
1: Yeah. And um, thank you for sharing that. And I think truly this question of co-optation is... You know, like central to your project and central to, um, you know, changing the subject. And what is interesting, particularly, is that you also frame co optation precisely in relation to these like changing conditions of like neoliberalization, liberalization first in the 90s, and then also like how the Indian women's movement itself changes and then eventually becomes. Um, in some way queer and trans, but I mean, that would be a bit of a reach, but, but you know, let's let's go with it for this conversation. Um, I mean, just so, to also,
0: uh, sorry, clarify if I can, if, if I may, that while I think the early motivation was very much uh, NGOs, NGOization, and I did a, a, a kind of preliminary pilot study, as one calls it, where my questions were very much limited to uh, thinking about or uh, asking academics, activists, NGO employees, you know, what what do you feel about these spaces, whether you're in it or whether you're out, out of it. I think eventually the actual product, the book go, goes much beyond that. So I wouldn't want readers to think that it's a book which is actually talking about NGO employees, because it's not. Uh, so in, in a way, the I don't know, the, the ultimately the research that I I focused on for the book, I think, shaped it in, in directions which were much more expansive, which kind of took me beyond just making a claim that is counter-co-option, which, I mean, I, is important, but I hope the book does something a little bit more than that, you know.
1: Hi, and many apologies for the small um, interruptions, but uh, Dr. Roy, you were talking about how the book isn't necessarily limited to the NGOization of the Indian women's movement. And uh, the main arguments are also broader than that. So could you, could you explain again? Thank you.
0: Yeah. I mean, maybe we can segue into the, the arguments, I suppose, which is always like a, a difficult uh, question, but I feel quite strongly. I mean, I've done this a few times and I have a a formulation, (laughs) but I feel like I've tried to frame it in that way because I want the book to be saying something about uh, feminism per se and not something about, or not only about uh, feminist and queer politics or NGOs and neoliberalism in India. And and I'm saying that quite deliberately because obviously, as you know too, Shraddha, uh, we are often cornered into speaking for our areas which are only of relevance, or uh, you know, only of significance to that particular uh, uh, highly populated part of the world, and doesn't actually then have, you know, reach elsewhere. So I, I think the way I'm I've begun to frame it, and of course I do in the book too, is about trying to be more provocative about how we can think about feminism more broadly through a different uh, lens. So effectively, the book makes, I guess you know, two to three arguments. Um, And as I, I, to kind of relate back to what we were talking about, some of that is indeed as a way of thinking beyond this, the binary of what's co-opted and what isn't. But some of it is, I think, suggestive of other more, I don't know, maybe more capacious ways of thinking about the contemporary conjuncture. So so unlike, uh, you know, arguments which tend to divide feminist struggles into those that are co-opted, um, not free, and those that are unco-opted or free. The book tries to suggest and show how feminism is always imbricated in power relations. So there's literally no point of thinking of a feminism as being outside of power. And what I propose is a, a conceptualization of feminism as a governmentality in its own right. So not just as being informed by external um, technologies or strategies of governance, but as a you know, a conduct of conduct in the broadest uh, possible sense, as a way of governing societies and uh, society and selves. So relatedly, I think, uh, and obviously, I'm not the only one, too, of feminism as a technology of the self, as a way of constituting uh, the making of the self, uh, often in novel ways, acting, you know, providing the tools to craft a new kind of self and a new way of life. And and I think one of the provocations of the book is also to maybe take the scale of the self a little more seriously than we have tended to, particularly in our kinds of contexts, and I, maybe I can I can come back to that and say why. So effectively, the book argues that, you know, as both um, a technology of governance and of the self, you know, feminism is, is never not co-opted, but that very entanglement, as I call it, you know, that very kind of imbrication is what enables feminism to be a creative and transformative force, right? And it's that kind of Tension that you know ethnographically, I'm exploring, and 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 otherwise, and so the book shows how you know in the specific context of um, you know postcolonial India, uh, feminist and queer feminist organizing is inextricably entangled in kind of layers of um, governing logics, you know, uh, which is very historically embedded in place and time. And here I make, I suppose, a final argument, which is to push against or try and temper these kind of overestimations of the transnational. You know, I want to kind, I want to reorient our gaze towards the local, towards historical specificities of place, because I think we are in that moment, or have been for a while, of saying, I mean, obviously in the Indian context with the 90s, globalization becomes the dominant analytic, right? So everything is quite easily explained in terms of much broader transnational forces, which I'm not saying are not important at all. But I'm also saying that none of those transnational forces can be thought of as derivatively landing in our context. So instead, I think of a folding, you know, how does neoliberalism travel and fold into existing Uh, you know uh, very embedded layers and logics of um, yeah of governing and long histories of governing racialized sexualized and gendered subjects particularly in the global south
1: thank you for sharing that and I think um, you know you really do capture the 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 arguments of the book very well like again like you said you have a formulation (laughs) Um, but I think uh, you know Based on what you said, I know I was I was hoping to ask this question later, but I think I want to ask it now, which is that you do really insist on remaining on the level of the subject and of the individual, right? And, and I think that's what's interesting about the book, that you talk about neoliberalization, globalization, even like the transnational, you talk about the women's movement, you talk about this idea of how queer collectives and politics come into being and are transformed over time, all of which are these like very macro level ideas, but you do it all while remaining on the level of the individual. You come back to the individual as if like as a site where all of these changes can be mapped. And I wonder what kinds of tensions does this produce in your work? And also what does focusing on the individual and their governmentality, for example, tell us about feminist and queer politics. So if I was reframing the question very simply, I would just ask why the individual and not the, not like a macro level analysis. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I,
0: I mean, I I feel like I, I always get this question uh, and not least because the book starts and ends with major critical events which have all been collective and mass-based, right? So it starts, for those who haven't read it, with uh, the massive uh, anti-rape protests which took place towards the end of 2012 with the rape and murder of a young woman in Delhi, and it ends with, you know, the Shaheen Bagh uh, sit-ins and protests that we saw against uh, the current uh, authoritarian politics of the government, which which actually just ended... Uh, with the pandemic i mean it was forced to end actually because the pandemic hit in uh, at the start of 2020 so and obviously i had reviewer two of the manuscript saying you're talking about the self, but you start and end with <laughs> these kind of moments of collectivization uh, very significant moments so what's going on here and i suppose my way of uh, i mean it was a it's a great and it's a valid question and i guess my response which i do say in the conclusion is to think about well what happens in between right what happens in between these moments of uh, revolution if you want and because as we know they don't come from anywhere and while the book is obviously not positing a clear kind of line or making causal connections or saying if a happens then you know we'll have a revolution tomorrow but it is trying to i suppose think about spaces which are outside of the protest and the march and not at the scale of the collective. And here, I think this has particular significance for post-colonial contexts like India, but people have made claims about you know, other related contexts like uh, Barbados and I mean even on the African continent where we are very attached to thinking of Um, collective change, social justice at the scale of the collective. So feminist slogans like the personal is the political have not, you know, traveled with with that much ease in our context. And here I have to say specifically given the history of a leftist, a communist West Bengal. So Raka Ray, um, who, for those who don't know, wrote, I think one of the most searing you know, ethnographies of this often, like a prehistory to my book of, you know, of Indian women's activists, some of whom were with left political parties in the West Bengal context, the same context where my book is located, and more autonomous women's groups. And she has this lovely uh, moment in the book where one of these autonomous women's groups, so, you know, they're, they're kind of like, a support group of, of women and, you know, they do, they're not like a mass-based organization anyway. So they, they do a diary entry where one of the activists says, today there was no work, so we just sat and talked about our lives. And I just thought that was so striking, right, that actually here is a feminist collective which doesn't talk about themselves, you know, and and that was not you know, a site of politicization, even amongst themselves. And then fast forward, when I started doing even the pilot study and I spoke to some queer activists who were even part of that generation, Uh, you know, one of them made this, again, this remarkable comment where they said, you know, the difference between uh, the Indian women's movement and then the early lesbian groups was there was something at stake for us. You know, we were doing it for ourselves we weren't speaking on behalf of someone else or, you know, we weren't completely eclipsing the self. So I feel like in all of these ways, it's important to think about, or at the very least start to think that if not uh, a a sufficient condition, it is perhaps a necessary condition to think of the self as a site of uh, social and eventually collective transformation. But I want to say something else, which is that I didn't go into the research thinking about this at all. Actually, I mean, uh, my frame was my framework was very much around governmentality. I was reading stuff around, um, you know, governance feminism. Um, I, I was kind of thinking it would be somewhere along the lines of how organized activism changes through NGOization and how that produces. Its own modalities of um, governance, broadly. But I think what immediately became apparent to me, um, and will be to anyone who's researching neoliberal development, is that the site of um, the site of of absolutely everything is the self. So what the organizations are really, and that's the shift with neoliberal development, that All the empowerment work, the gender training, the consciousness raising, it's no longer about providing a service or or providing welfare. You know, the real shift with the neoliberal turn is that the self, it is the individual who is now being empowered to actually, you know, uh, do the development themselves. So the classic, which I, you know, I evoke in the book, like, don't give the man a fish teach him how to fish right so in a sense it was unavoidable to not think about the self seriously because the terrain i was now observing was you know was dense with these technologies of transforming the self through all these different technologies right and whether that was uh, as one organization called it geared towards outward empowerment or inward empowerment right so it was it, it was unavoidable to start, you know, taking that scale seriously. But I think eventually what I try and do in the book is I also try and move beyond thinking then of the self as very straightforwardly available for only neoliberal subjectification. I mean, that had been the kind of other argument that particularly from Northern feminists that I was reading, you know, the female self is, I mean, you know, the Nancy Frasers and even uh, uh, my co-editor in feminist theory, Catherine Rottenberg, who talks about the rise of neoliberal feminism. I mean, I have an enormous sympathy with all of those arguments, but I was curious about where, how that translates into our context and whether new—you neolib- know something called the neoliberal feminine or even feminist self looks exactly the same you know in calcutta or and its surrounds as it as it does elsewhere you know and i don't think even now that there are enough of us doing that i mean again uh, um a co-editor at feminist theories um Le dosikin has done this work on nigeria looking at neoliberal and post femininities in nigeria but i do feel that there is more scope for us in the global south to be Concrete to not just use this terminology, but concretely map how these so-called neoliberal selves are being lived out, whether that's in spaces of of NGOs, development activism, or in which obviously are informed by wider forces of consumption, rapid urbanisation, etc., etc. So I mean, I think I'm saying a lot, but you know, maybe there's something we can you can tell me that piques your interest, and we can go back to.
1: I think so, and I think again, like the book does does talk about all of this. So it's it's not a lot in insofar as it, it does really convey the the central ideas of the book. And I, I suppose one of the questions I have from what you're saying is that um is there something outside of then like in in terms of how you're mapping the individual self um within this kind of governmentality of feminism? Um, uh, is there something outside of that? Like, so are feminist subjects, for example, while also um, like practicing this mode of governmentality, are they also, uh, or did you see moments during your fieldwork where you saw them as also doing more than that or something other than that? Yeah, right, like, right. Yeah, no, so that's a great question. And I think that is actually why, I think I
0: liked the, um, you know, I I mean, Foucault's always my man, because I feel like it gives you that theoretical elasticity, right, to to say that even when, uh, even if subjects are always caught with, uh, within, you know, let's put it simply, power relations, they can always demand to be governed differently. And I think that's just really interesting, right? So it's not to say subjects can opt out of power, but they can actually be uh, interpolated differently. And there are clear moments, I think, where my you know site research site sh- reveals that, right? Where so, for instance, where rural women say, uh, you know, resist NGO attempts at saving them from early marriage or um, you know, uh, domestic violence, and so on and so forth. And it's not because of reasons of tradition or culture, they're actually demanding something else, like they're demanding financial inclusion, for instance, they're demanding better schools, they're demanding an end to, uh, uh, you know, alcoholism as as a social problem, which is pervasive in their communities, right? So it's not, it's not opting out, it's actually saying, well, you know, that there are always ways to maneuver and negotiate particular kinds of power relations. And in, I think, um, particularly in the chapters, which are about the self, which is probably chapter four and chapter uh, six, you know, I do show how obviously, um, you know, as you said, this, this, how new selves are crafted within these layers of governmentality, but how they constantly exceed those logics. Right. And again, that's interesting. If, if I, continue to use the example of um, the rural organization, which you know, is imagining women's empowerment in very specific ways and, and using very specific kind of tools to incite that form of empowerment, right? So gender training, consciousness raising, uh, you know, literacy around rights and so on and so forth. But instead, what you have is a bunch of community women who get this training, and then go off and do a bunch of other things like have fun, uh, you know, seek new forms of pleasure, individualism, consumption, and none of it is straightforwardly feminist. Actually, some of it would, I mean, at, at some level, and that's where I think, I mean, you asked about kind of the tensions. So, so the terrain of the self is not some terrain of resistance. You know, it, it's not, I'm not positing it as. Like some train, terrain of age you know easy agency or resistance, right? It's actually some of their modes of subjectification are far more amenable to neoliberal or post feminist logics and actually would quite uh, would trouble the NGO who would seem much more feminist, you know. So I think it's it's to stay with that tension and that ambivalence in or at the terrain of both, I think. The, the governmental strategies as well as the self-making rather than to, I hope, ultimately, you know, rather than to like clear it out and say, well, actually, you know, this is this is the regime of power uh, bad and this is the regime of agency good. Right. And, then, and again, I feel like conceptually this this, you know, this framework allowed me, I think, to do that a little bit.
1: So, and I think, again, it's very, the work is very interesting in that you follow, you really follow, like, people very closely, which is um, unusual in some ways for writing about, like, politics of any kind. And uh, unless it's an autobiography or something, which is a very different genre of writing, right? But I think in in this way, I think one of the questions then becomes... um, what does that ambivalence do to your understanding of feminism or in general of politics, right? Like um, in in some ways it is the realm of like certainty and action. And so what does the ambivalence really do here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And, and, you know,
0: Shrata, I feel like uh, some of the early responses to the book have really appreciated uh, an analytic of ambivalence, right. And have really been like, you know, it's, it's messy and uh, and it's it sits with that and and that's great and and I'm 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 happy for the response but I feel like I sit with it quite uneasily because you know the time of the book was not the 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 political conjuncture has shifted a lot right and I kind of reflect on that was the end of the book but but you know the political stakes have considerably. Are considerably higher, and I don't even mean that in terms of just what we know is happening in India now. I mean, if we think of what Uganda has just done in terms of, you know, homosexuality, uh, I, I mean, I, I always think of these. I mean, lots of people are thinking of these things together, right? So, you know, death penalty for homosexuality in Uganda on the one hand, and in India on the on the other hand, a kind of queerness which is becoming very commensurate and comfortable with Hindu nationalism, right? So. So I I, I feel like we are in this moment of incredible um, gains and losses and backlashes. And I don't know if actually ambivalence is then the right um, political and ethical response. You know, I I, I feel ambivalent (laughs) about, I mean, on the one hand, I suppose, you know, we can think two things at the same time. On the one hand, I feel strongly that the book, Achieves w- what I hope it would, which is to expand our gaze when we think of, you know, what is queer, what is queer, and what is feminist transformation or politics, right? Why, why is it, you know, a, a trans man who 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 feels exiled from kinship? Like, what is the, you know, why is it important? Do you see? so why is it that at that very everyday banal scale, and why is it also the anti anti rape? activism against Jyoti Singh Pandey. Do you see what I mean? Like, I, I feel like the book is successful in bringing those things together. But at the same time, then I wonder about how the book will endure in terms of our current political challenges to say, is it enough to sit with, you know, to say, well, actually everything is maybe feminist and that's okay and not take harder stance. I don't know.
1: <laughs> I, I, I feel like I
0: want to know what you think. <laughs>
1: I mean, I think, I think um, again, like the, the present moment also puts us in a particular kind of spot because um, the political pressures act in a way that they take away the room for us to be ambivalent, which essentially means that they take away room for us to maneuver. Like the ambivalence also does something important in feminist work, in queer work, in trans work, where it's like, the ambivalence is a way to come to a decision. The ambivalence is a way to hold on to different perspectives at the same time without becoming antagonistic. And so the current political moment in India, as elsewhere, where authoritarianism is on the rise, um, it by taking away the time to be ambivalent, what it does is it it actually sows a kind of division because it tells you to form an opinion immediately and it tells you to form a direction immediately without actually having that time to be ambivalent, right? Like, So so in that way, I think I find that very interesting and I would still claim that again, and this is um, my psychoanalytic training speaking much more than my gender studies training, people are ambivalent in life. So there is no politics where um, we can have a kind of um non ambivalent stance towards something, and politics often fails at that time where you excise the ambivalence from within your midst right so you'll have like you'll have that moment where 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 you know like we're deciding on something and the majority wants one thing and then the minority wants some other thing or isn't fully convinced, but you tell them to either get with the program or keep quiet because moving forward is what is important so in some ways, political work happens by by not negotiating with the ambivalence very well. But again, this is my psychoanalytic training speaking. It comes back. It's not that the ambivalence goes away because it hasn't been reconciled. Um. So so actually, like that's a very yeah yeah no. Ne-
0: I mean, thank you. I feel like that just reminds me. Oh, that is what I've been trying to say in this book actually. <laughs> that you know, that it's a uh, it's it. At, at any kind of, of level, I mean, however much, however intentional, for instance, these organizations were perhaps being in their own uh, pedagogic and transformatory projects. I mean, there were ambivalences that could not be masked. So, for instance, and this is why I suppose we are interested in the question of, of the relation, the unique relationship and history of queer and non-queer feminisms in India, because they've had an ambivalent relationship and history. Right. And you can't kind of wish that away or or mask it. Right. And now it's also a terrain of ambivalence with more, you know, more recent uh, trans feminist groups in particular in particular. Right. And and I suppose then, like you're saying, the point is and I think that is the point I'm also making to try and, and sit with that, you know, to embrace it rather than to channel uh, political energy into clearing space, right, into clearing ground and deciding, you know, who I, I mean, in today's millennial language, who is an ally and who isn't, etc. But I do want to say one final thing about, um, you know, ambivalence, which is I also think maybe we could run with a little, a little more in our context, because I feel like in the global South, we have been forced into taking on more harder positions, right? So because we have always acted as a foil to imperial projects. So either we have to take that defensive position of saying, but I'm not a victim who needs to be saved by, you know, an imperial feminism, right? Or um, yes, I am a victim and please save me. (laughs) You know, so I feel like it's always been our burden to actually uh, take very hard and farce kind of positions and actually not to be that subject. I mean, Lali Khalili writes beautifully about, uh, you know, Palestinian women who, uh, you know, want a little bit of nail polish and want to do frivolous things and have fun. And and that's kind of what we're all trying to say, that we don't just want to be these bichara subjects who have always been written into history as helpless, victimized, etc., But we want to be many things at the same time and we want our politics to be many things at the same time right and and part of the book is to think about feminist friction it is to think about you know the, non, the 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 complexities around uh solidarity um you know the ambivalence i sat with with writing about this as i as i say in the conclusion because i don't know if we have as southern feminists have had enough space to do that given the kind of defensive position we've had to take
1: and i think that's a good point and that's also how you start the book right but it, in my mind it i think it's like uh, you know just like authoritarianism takes away that space to be ambivalent i think again like imperialism does the same thing the 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 demands are like the demands of these regimes are pretty much the same even if the regimes actually have um you know like very distinct uh, like effects right so I think the way in which they operate is pretty much the same. And I think, again, denying ambivalence is also denying some part of subjectivity. Um, And what becomes interesting is that how, you know, like how we ourselves will deny ourselves that kind of ambivalence. Um, But I think why queer feminism remain important or interesting for me is it's like precisely because... um, there is, I think, a good enough negotiation with ambivalence as well. Like, there is a good enough negotiation with um, knowing what the problems are or knowing what the differences are and still taking a position. Um, and, and, and you know, like some, as if saying in that moment of taking a decision that, yes, we know we've let some things go here, but they can come back, you know. So th- there's a bit of an ease with that as well, I think, in, in, in some moments. So um uh, but again maybe i'm i'm too hopeful or something i don't i don't know um but i think i want to also ask you um again i think this this also brings us to the next point which is that the central claim of the book is that feminism is a form of neoliberal governmentality um or rather if i can rephrase that better feminism is its own mode of governmentality and that it offers feminist subjects the opportunity for self-government and also, importantly, neoliberal transformation, right? So can you explain that a bit? And I think I also want to understand what made you arrive at this claim uh, in in the sense of, like, what is it that you were observing that, that made you really tie these things together? Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, as I said, I
0: think at some point in this conversation, you know, when, uh, when I started... Uh, you know, to get into this, this, this project, I feel like we there was a real dominance of these debates around neoliberalism and feminism, you know, so the Nancy Fraser's coming of history, and, you know, again, and this, I suppose, because I was, I had started with co-option, and it kind of brought me quite organically to, the main baddie in the room, which was neoliberalism, right? So even, you know, for someone like Fraser, even the gains of uh, second wave feminism have actually been a lot more amenable to uh, neoliberal uh, transitions. And as I said, I was... and Oh, and also the other thing that was interesting was that everyone was using governmentality, like neoliberal governmentality, right? I mean, particularly, I think, feminist scholars, because they were trying to move beyond thinking of neoliberalism as a kind of narrow economic... Um, you know, phenomenon to think of it as, as, as much broader, to think of it as a way of really reconstituting ourselves, everyday lives, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, I think there's a lot of elasticity and value to that. So I think it was a, kind of an obvious place uh, to go um, and to think about, uh, you know, the terrain in part of neoliberal development, which which was very, again, which was, um, which was dominant in, in the context I was looking at, right? Because from starting with, you know, the language of empowerment to rights, even, uh, you know, queer groups who were using the language of women's rights or uh, violence against women, I mean, sometimes the early kind of project money they would get would be really not necessarily around lesbian rights, but to do work on violence against women. And that's that makes obvious sense, obviously, especially in a time when actually you know, homosexuality was criminalized in India. How else would you get money to do anything, right? So, anyway, so this, so, so, so I was entering a terrain which, where neoliberal development, you know, was playing, was 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 shaping what people could imagine and could do, the change they could, you know, they could they could think of, and 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 and, and, and you know, conceptually there was a critical literature that was talking about about this, and but I, I felt like there was more that I could do with this, this, the, the idea of governmentality. And so, no, I, I mean, I don't, I don't say in the book that it's, I mean, sure, it's, you know, you, you could, and other people have thought of feminism as a form of neoliberal governmentality. But I suppose I'm trying to make a slightly bigger claim, which is you could think of feminism as a strategy of uh, of, of government as a technology of government, like sp- historically, if you think of, you know, imperial feminisms, if you think of, uh, and and here, you know, I want to go back to, I don't know if you've read that essay and the book by Barbara uh, Krukshank, who's a political theorist, which is The Will to Empower. I mean, I read it right at the start. And, you know, she talks about how democracy is, is literally a technology or a strategy of, of, of government, right? So anything, I mean, they, to put it like very I suppose, very simply and crudely, you know, a, a, any kind of project, however, liberatory is, is looking, is the end goal of the project is transformation, right? It's transformation of, of the self really conduct behavior, you know, you could think of it as a as a form of governmentality. And I just thought that helps me to think of how, uh, you know, particular feminine, localized feminist practices are informed by neoliberalism, but by other kinds of logics, right? Logics of the left, which are, are really, have really endured in this particular site because it's had a very unique history, as you know, um, and, and various, various other kinds of logics that work at, at different um, scales but I but finally I want to say that this idea of you know governmentality all also really helped me think about the self and put actually the two under one analytic frame so bring it under one gaze you know so so to really think about how uh, forms of self are crafted through these layers of governmentality and to think of that tense and intimate, relationship as happening together and not as, you know, two separate things. And and I also felt, so I was quite committed to, you know, reading all my governmentality studies stuff. And but particularly in the Indian context, like if you think of people like Akhil Gupta and James uh, Ferguson, they weren't really talking about the self, you know, they were really interested in um, new arts and technologies of government, which was state-like or outside of the state or of the state and so on and so forth. Right. So they were using, uh, this, this, pati- this particular analytic to think about state effects. But they weren't, I mean, I didn't see a lot of people who were all thinking about, you know, using governmentality to think about why loiter in Pink Chatti, which I did in an in a early piece, you know. I thought of, well, there was, again, a, a, a small argument in India, which was like, these are all neoliberal feminisms because they're all highly individualized and consumption-based and so on and so forth. Yeah, OK, maybe. But I also then tried to think of them as constituting technologies of the self. And again, I could only do that by taking this idea that, you know, the Foucauldian idea that the government of the other and the government of the self are intimately connected. So, yeah, I felt like it gave me that kind of um, elasticity and reach and just, you know, put a lot of like different things that were happening under under one yeah under one umbrella
1: hmm. i think that's a, <laughs> Sorry. i think that's a good point and uh, um i think it's also that like it reminds us that um one i don't i don't fully know what the and maybe this is a bit you know maybe it's a bit simple but like i don't fully know what the problem necessarily is by about um Something like the Pink Chaddi campaign, like using consumption to to make a make a kind of claim or like resist something. Um, if we are already in a again, like we don't, you know, we don't have similar critiques of, for example, or like as sharp, um, or like uh, you know sharp critiques of neoliberalism in other forms, or in other modes of life. So why is it necessarily something that we only want to pick on to? discredit, you know, I don't know, like a kind of feminist claim or like a moment of feminist action. And I was going to say, I think it it had its time, but actually it come, it came back with Me Too.
0: You know, it, I mean, again with Me Too, there were, you know, these classic uh, arguments to say, oh, it's really, it's just individual, it's uh, hash, not hashtag, hashtag feminism. Yeah, I suppose, right? Like it has, it, it's nothing beyond just that. And and I think you're right. I think that the question should be: Why are you know feminist politics so amenable to these uh, critiques, which are then not made for other kinds of, you know, campaigns around I don't know rent control or, <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, what was I going to say, uh, fair trade or uh, you know other kinds of consumption practices, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. And, and, and I think
0: yes, of course no go on. No, no, you go ahead, please.
1: <laughs> I was just saying that yes, of course, these critiques are important, but I don't think they should be used to fully discredit a moment or a movement, right? Like there is something that the that the movement like there's something that need to achieve despite its critiques. So um and and I think like what I'm just I think resisting is hitting against like a kind of claim that that resists understanding or taking on board what those achievements might be by using neoliberalism as a kind of foil to disengage then from what what is actually transpiring and i think that i find happens quite often which is you know just 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 bad practice so
0: i absolutely
1: yeah i absolutely agree and
0: i have to say even though ultimately besides just a a context setting bit at the early part of the book, sadly, I didn't delve much into, uh, you know, these new millennial feminisms, as I call it, but that was actually very much part of what I was interested in very early on. You know, I was really interested in all these major shifts that were happening, you know, in the run up to and after um, the Jyoti Singh Pandey event, right? Like we really did see an explosion of, you know, urban uh, women, men, non-binary individuals. Like we saw queering of public space. We saw public spaces being reconfigured in really different ways. And often our response was skepticism and shutting down, you know. And I mean, I think that's shifted a lot. It's been, I mean, for people who don't know, I think that has shifted. But it, it, there is something to be asked, right, about what happens when your immediate response is of, cynicism and 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 actually therefore I think and I say this at the start I wanted I wanted to do an easy book uh, an easily optimistic <laughs> book to counter that right I wanted to say oh you're wrong you think ngo spaces are all co-opted and you think these millennial you know feminists are actually sellouts or whatever and here I'm just going to give you a counter narrative which is very optimistic and positive and that's I don't think that's actually I mean I say that but I read a recent review which um, will hopefully, you know, come out soon. And that person reads the book as actually an optimistic <laughs> portrayal. So I was quite, I was like, okay, fine, I get it. But yeah, I mean, I think actually to go back to the governmentality bit, it also afforded ways to think of activism and the changing life of activism differently, right? So, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily provocative, but to say what are the governance, I, I mean, how how can we think of, forms of queer and feminist activism is generating its own kinds of governmentalities, right? So its own sort of normative ideas of what it means to be queer or what it means to live a queer life, right? And how is that commensurate or not with being religious, for instance, or with being um, homo-nationalist, et cetera, et cetera, right? So how do these forms counter hegemonic, forms generate their own kind of normativities, which I think is, is again, It's I don't think that's a critical g- claim. I think that's, that's an obvious claim, but I think it's interesting, or it was interesting for me to observe and map that, right, and to also see how that changes over the life course of uh, at least these two particular organizations. I mean, not the life course, but, but rephrase, but a snapshot in their history, right, and to see how that how that changes and how that changes in terms of transnational shifts, but how that changes in terms of highly localized sensibilities, right? So sensibilities around class, caste, and respectability, for instance.
1: So the next question that I wanted to ask you was um, specifically around the context of West Bengal, right? And you really do take care to kind of center West Bengal as a place, a region, a concept, its history. In in the book, so so I guess, uh, could you say more about what is particular to um, your arguments, uh, given that they're situated in West Bengal? How does West Bengal present itself in your work? And why is that, you know, why is that particularity also important?
0: Right, right.
1: So, uh, you know, as I said, like one of
0: the things I was interested in, or I was trying to um, argue against was this idea that global neoliberalism looks the same everywhere, right? And I just think knowing, you know, the, this particular ethnographic site as you do, I mean, I just thought it, 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 it lent very easily to a study of multiple genealogies and multiple and quite rich and robust political legacies, which is what I was quite interested in, in, in observing, Right, how these kind of endure in a moment that we think of as very much defined by the global and the transnational. I mean, so so that was sort of one reason. Having said that, I don't I think it's it's a story about the variations of neoliberalism. Go on, Sheila, sorry. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. So I think, in a sense, it's it's a story about. Uh, the variations or the travels of neoliberalism, which which are kind of universally valid, so you could map that elsewhere. But I think this particular, you know, the richness of the site offers more, and certainly, I hope draws the the reader in. Right. So for people who don't know, as you know, uh, Shraddha, the you know the state has been unique in having uh, thirty four a year long uninterrupted communist rule which even though it ended in 2011 i think it's fair to say that you know the the state and the capital city of calcutta or kolkata however you want to call it still has quite a palpable leftist ethos and culture and i think that endures even in much more recent political formations whether those are you know more rad student movements that have broken away from The sort of mainstream left or even in queer feminisms or even in the kind of everyday self-understanding and organizational strategies of groups that have no kind of a historical uh, you know links to the organized left which is unique because as we know you know Calcutta is a place where everyone's every second person's kaka or mama has is of the communist party. Right. So, and that's actually how, you know, the, how the CPM and this kind of leftist ethos endured in this, in these networks of these kind of affective networks that pervaded entire neighborhoods, which is why just with the ending of, you know, the, the formal um, party, it, it doesn't go away. And I think, I mean, of course it's been a longer time now, but I think that the, time I was looking at, I was quite struck by how much, you know, the language of the left uh, permeated, you know, the every, everyday NGO speak, right? But everyday NGOs speak, which would be seen as quite incommensurate with the left's ideology. So this idea of uh, standing on your own two feet, the, this popular slogan, you know. Um, uh, uh, as a way of talking about women's empowerment. You know, women must be financially independent. And we know that 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 has been very, you know, particular to um, uh, uh, left campaigning and left ideologies. But now, of course, at least the NGO that I'm looking at, which is kind of exemplary of many microfinance institutions, is using that same kind of sloganing, but to get women to access credit, which is a form of being indebted, right? So it's a completely opposing strategy of economic empowerment or standing on one's own two feet. But uh, the interesting thing is the amenability or the reach of that discourse, because you're talking to, you know, generations of Myra and Bonera, mothers and sisters who who have heard that language, right? Who know and are very deeply familiar with the language of um, standing on one's own two feet or literacy, you know, literacy was also very... Big for um, the CPM and so on and so forth. But even in the queer circles, I found this kind of um, what I talk about in chapter three. I think a very unique and specific kind of you know Bhadralok leftist sensibility, right? Which is very much invested in uh, um, intellectual labour. You know, studying uh, like like what like actually re- having study circles and reading collective reading together and doing particular forms of consciousness raising and even having a kind of slight pretentious intellectualism which i think is very <laughs> peculiar to this milieu and it would i uh, arguably be quite different if it was in a comparable metropolitan um, city like you know bombay or uh, bangalore delhi and so on and so forth right so so i think this was a rich context for seeing how those specificities um, endure, and you wouldn't find them elsewhere, which is not to say but I don't want to make it so unique that you cannot generalize to anywhere else in the country or indeed elsewhere, right? Because there were obviously other kind of uh, trends. So, you know, for instance, some of the queer activists I had spoken to over the years had also been a part of... um, the anti-rape protests that had traveled from Delhi to Calcutta and elsewhere, and you know, what had also been much earlier part of even like a slut walk march and so on and so forth. So they were there were national changing trends in terms of you know um, feminist, feminist student, left, queer politics, and how all of these kind of converged. And, and that happened at a national scale and at a regional scale in, in distinct ways, right? Um, so yeah, I think in in that sense, this kind of this this layering was rich in this context. But also, I feel oh sorry, and now I, I lost my train of thought. And I know what I was going to say about the the feminist politics. I don't think you know since the Raka Ray. Book. I don't think this region has been taken seriously in terms of these millennial feminisms, right? So when we've, I mean, as we know, like Delhi is always the site. And even if we think of Naisar Gitawe's book, which is, you know, as we know, seminal, but a lot of those activists are Yeah, they're they're Delhi based, right? And I feel like, particularly in terms of the queer gaze, Calcutta is not the obvious. I think you would agree, it's not the obvious site. I mean, maybe now, arguably, but it's interesting. I mean, it's it's I say it's not an obvious site, but it's also the site where there weren't violent protests, you know, after the film fire. There weren't cinemas weren't vandalized, and I say that in the book that that's an important moment of showing how you know the left made. Space for some kind of tolerance, even if it wasn't championing um, gay rights, right? But you know, it didn't have that right-wing assault on uh, freedom of speech as other cities did. So I think there's, there's, but but uh, um, Kareem uh, Kupjan makes this argument about Bangalore, and I think it is similar. Like I think because also you know west bengal and calcutta has had like this clumsy late entry into neoliberalism into kind of you know the 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 very obvious markers of metropolitan neoliberalism that you've seen elsewhere in the country right in in metropolitan sites I mean, calcutta had a, a like i said like a delayed entry so you wouldn't think of it as a queer space in the same way you know I mean, you're you're looking ambival- ambivalent, so I'd like to hear what you think. But anyway, having said that, I think in I mean, so I thought it was also an interesting site to think of, you know, contemporary uh, expressions of feminist and queer politics. And uh, to go back to the Raka Ray book, you know, it's really interesting, and obviously you you can sense how important that book has been to me. And the book ends um, with uh, with the the kind of coming of NGOs. And uh, Raqqa ends the book on a hopeful note, thinking that NGOs will finally maybe uh, disrupt leftist hegemony in the city, which was informing both, you know, groups, women's groups that were officially affiliated to the left, but even groups that ha- were not affiliated to the left, right? This kind of uh, field if, uh, of feminist field, if you want. And then Nivi Menon very quickly uh, in her book, which comes close on the heels, actually takes that argument on straight and says clearly that sh- she has a far more cynical uh, evalu- assessment of the coming of NGOs and rejects uh, Raka Ray's optimism and says, you know, NGOs are not a counter-hegemonic project. And, and I just thought, again, in my early... You know, thinking around this, I just thought this was really interesting, right? And again, to go back to, you know, the co opted and unco opted, you know, what would this region, which is so dense in histories of everything from colonialism, globalization, a late liberalism, a liberalization, uh, this very particular uh, leftist Marxist um, uh, 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 logic, a fast changing slow but now fast changing rural uh, economy like what will all of that now present for the ways in which Ray and Menon were perceiving this field at the end of the 90s and the beginning of the 2000s and
1: I think that's a great point I I wasn't looking ambivalent as much as I was thinking that uh, now you know actually um Sapphire for Equality is perhaps the oldest queer feminist organization in the country, um, Labia having been disbanded just very recently. And so in, in some ways, like West Bengal has been the center for a kind of very persistent, very uh, consistent lesbian and then queer feminist activism. And uh, yes, I think this this idea that it still remains an unusual place to think about when you think about queerness, like, I I, I think I was just pondering on what are the factors that make that happen. But but that's a very different kind of question. And I think... you know a different kind of digression that could be its own kind of project in some ways that like but if i can just say on that, uh, <clears throat>
0: on Sapphire for equality i mean again it's it's and i think it's exemplary of the uniqueness of uh, of place so i actually first heard about it through you know some of the women i knew through the nokshlife movement and and again that goes completely Uh, That kind of intimacy, which is a very sort of everyday intimacy, goes against the more macro inherited arguments that we have, which is like the leftist feminists were completely anti, uh, you know, queer feminists. And they were, of course, they were homophobic. But I think, again, you know, Calcutta presents these moments of uh, you know these these kind of curious slippages where actually so I know a whole I knew at the time a generation of really hardcore leftist activists and they were like look at this new this new queer fo- group of well I mean they didn't use the word queer then but it was lesbian women you know and look at the fantastic things they're doing and I'm 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 I don't know I don't know if that would happen el- elsewhere right and also I have to say that. Uh, and right from the start, that uh, that is also what really piqued my interest in staff of equality as an organization, because, uh, I mean, we haven't talked about it, but obviously, you know, like, again, one of the other sort of subterranean arguments of the book is around generation, right? And different feminist generations. And, and again, these, you know, it's trying to counter these kind of very clear, you know, lines of uh, what, again, we've derivatively inherited from elsewhere, like a first wave, second wave, third wave. And this organization, which would in that framing be very much thought of, you know, uh, uh, almost like a third wave, right? Like a kind of anti-particular generation of um, non-queer feminists, very much, I think, in its early life uh, mirrored That early generation, because it started as a small support group, you know, uh, women who met, mostly women, not all cis women, but mostly who met in the evenings, you know, uh, for each other. And then it kind of changed and evolved. And that's very much the trajectory and the history of these autonomous women's groups, right? And also, I think, in those early days, had this real openness where you would find, you know, a noxialite woman. And actually, to say again, for for uh, uh, the uniqueness of that space in that context, that uh, akin organizations, like, as you know, who were part of Moitri, the major network, you know, didn't have that that openness and didn't have that kind of, curiosity which which would attract women of all generations right so you would have the old noctualites coming to sappho and you would have like very young women who were curious about sexuality you know and i just think again that's something about of course that's something about the organization and its own history but that's something also about place i think
1: i think so i think so and i think um you know again there's a lot that can be talked about in terms of how um, West Bengal in particular shapes a kind of queer community, which isn't something that you would see elsewhere necessarily, for sure. Um, and, I, and I think your book does, does take that on. And, you know, I guess people should read it to find out more. Um, but uh, <laughs> I think I want to, yeah, I think, uh, you know, one of my final questions is always that, uh, you know, one, how would you like your readers to take up your book? And then the second is what are some of the projects you are excited to work on in the future or are working on now that are particularly exciting to you? Yeah, thank you.
0: Um, I mean, I suppose, you know, I, I, I guess perhaps, you know, readers could take the book and they could take from it what they want, right? I think it is, it is amenable to different kind or they could take it entirely at face value, which is a lot of hesitance and ambivalence. <laughs> But, yeah, so I think you could read it. I mean, obviously, you could read it if you're interested in you know feminist and queer politics in india And I suppose a lot of South Asianists amongst us would be interested. but I hope it would interest you know uh, people from other locales, and I think it has i mean, I think when i've as you know obviously and you've said i I live and work in in South Africa and uh You know, there are ways in which when I've talked about it, people are like, oh, yeah, I mean, this is stuff that's, you know, happening here. And we've kind of talked about it or we haven't talked about it and so on and so forth. Right. And that's obviously very exciting and nice to think about, you know, how a book. And again, to go back to, I suppose, what I said at the start, because our burden is so much that we get pigeoned in area studies And, and and actually, it's not actually that we just get pigeoned. I mean, to be honest, one of the things I I regret about the project, because, you know, I I made the transition from the UK to South Africa, while, you know, doing the research and, and already beginning to write up is I just didn't, I didn't know enough of the South African feminist literature. And that's not represented in the book, you know, and and i and i feel that very much now that if i had to do it all over again now maybe you know maybe foucault wouldn't be my man <laughs> because actually my epistemic horizons have expanded so much so much more and 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 this is a problem of you know our colonial inheritances that we we just we get um, uh, cornered into those those kind of silos, and we don't read across. And actually, that's maybe a, a, a way to segue into you know what I'm doing now, and and that's basically what I'm doing now. I'm thinking of you know questions of decolonization, particularly in the context of um, higher education, but from and across the South. So I I feel like a lot of the conversations, oddly, given how you know, South Africa in particular has been a site of very robust decolonial imperatives and movements. But I think a lot of the conversation has really shifted to the north. And a lot of the, you know, right I mean typically the writing theorization is happening from the north, or it's very much at the scale of the north and the south. But I'm really interested and and I guess because of who, you know, my particular academic migratory trajectory, which I guess has been a little unique. You know, I'm from India. I lived and worked for a decade in the UK, and now I've lived and worked for a decade in South Africa. So I'm much more interested in the thinking and doing of decolonial and transnational feminism in the South, right? And I'm also interested in the difficulties of that, rather than a kind of easy um, celebration of like, let's say, afro solidarity, or an easy sense of you know, the South-South as being remedy or corrective to North-South. So basically the essays, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm writing a set of essays and it's about challenges, difficulties in, for instance, teaching the South in the South, doing research collaborations across the South, um, internationalizing the South from here, but on at uh, to uh, you know, scales elsewhere, and also thinking about how movements and concepts travel. But yeah, I think that, I mean, basically, the the general uh, question I'm interested in is, well, I mean, several, I mean, and obviously, one of them is how much this idea of the South helps us, right, <laughs> in thinking through all of this. But it is also, um, you know, a way of really not not reaching too easily in ways that I did, you know, when I moved from... As a South Asianist in South Africa, I think I reached very easily to thinking, oh, let's just do a project and put India and South Africa in comparison. Why? Why? (laughs) You know, I'm so, now I want to kind of step back and think about what those desires and investments came from. And obviously there are good historical reasons for that. And they're not just my personal ones and how, what they make possible, but what they also foreclose. And I think what they foreclose is what I'm calling dissonant intimacies, which is a term I take from Keguru Macharia, and that's what I'm hoping to call the set of essays. So yeah, I'm very excited about doing that and also doing a set of essays where I don't actually have to interview any human subjects or observe anyone, we can just like
1: pontificate (laughs) and write. (laughs) I mean, I think it's a a great project to think about also Keguru being such a fantastic scholar and you know, truly an inspiration for so many of us. And, and I, think, I think this is a very timely project given that decolonization has become in such a perverse way taken up in North America now. Um, and truly, I think it's, it's, it's disturbing how easily that word slips out in a very institutionalized discourse in, in the global North, which is, you know, again, something really deeply troubling. Yeah. I mean
0: it's also interesting to me actually how it hasn't had that much traction in India. It seems to be now but not and and yeah and this is the stuff which I feel that we we're not actually mapping because so much of the debate is focused on on the north where either people are critiquing or they're just promoting decolonization as the new diversity mantra, right?
1: I mean, again, India's place in colonial processes is, uh, again, to come back to this, an ambivalent one. Um, But I think, again, like, this is a great project to be thinking about. But we will return to the book for the final closing comments, which is that, you know, thank you again, once, thank you for this insightful conversation. And, you know, it was truly a pleasure to talk to you and kind of make the book come alive in this discussion. Um, And I think uh, for the listeners particularly, I'd like to quote some lines from the book to end this interview. Um, Dr. Roy writes, changing the subject uses the current conjuncture of post-liberalization to trace longer and wider shifts in the logics and techniques of governing a range of gendered, classed, and sexualized subjects, especially in the global South feminist governmentalities, as Dr. Roy calls them, reveals a deep and dynamic historic architecture which, while entangled in global neoliberalism is not reducible to it. In their explicit orientation towards changing the self, these governmentalities also constitute the conditions for making new subjects and selves the interplay between techniques of governance and techniques of self-making is at the heart of this book, which offers a new way of knowing feminism, its practices, logic, subjects and others. If you want to know more, the book is available online and in bookstores. Thank you so much for talking to us. oh well, thank you so much, Shalda. It, it was truly, in spite
0: of all our te- technical challenges, it was a very, very nourishing conversation. Thank you.